podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Alderson. I've got... uh, Who's that? That's that's uh, Nick Hanna in the room. What's up, Nick? How we doing? Good, good. We've also got two biologists from Fish Bio, our sponsor, in the room tonight. We're going to talk about um, invasive species, both uh, plants, fish. Um, what else? The, the creepy creepers and crawlers, all kinds of crazy stuff. Invasive pieces. Invasive pieces. <laughs> And um, your skin will crawl, I guarantee it. Uh, well, before we jump into this episode, I wanted to talk quickly about, um, we, we were up in Nevada City um, a few uh, a, while, a while back. and um, A benefit for yeah. Cast Hope, the fly fishing, international yep. fly fishing film tour. Yeah, it was awesome. And, and um, on my way up there, I listened to a podcast, the Jocko podcast, if you guys haven't heard of it. Uh, Jocko is a uh, former Navy SEAL and now he's kind of like a motivational coach. He does like, um, you know, he goes, he does corporate motivation events. He's also just a Badass. super, super solid dude. Um, he had a guy on, um, this guy, Dan Crenshaw. Dan is also a former Navy SEAL and just a stud. And the topic of that podcast was find a mission and win. Um, it's podcast 118. Really, really good episode. You guys should watch it. I bring it up because it really resonated with me, especially when I got into the theater. Um, looking around, you know, I've, you know, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm like 46 right now. And up until, you know, three years ago, I really didn't have a mission. And, you know, I've gotten in this industry and, and the more, the more people I meet, um, I, I realized that, you know, getting into this industry deep is my mission. And I realized like, like sitting in that theater, looking around and, and the enthusiasm watching the films that most of the people in that room were on the same mission. And, and I found that very humbling and also exciting. Um, to, I think together we can do a lot of stuff for conservation um, and get new people in the industry and grow the sport. I just wanted to say that. Go check out that episode. And I, it was great meeting everybody over, over that weekend. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I've never seen people so excited to win something at a raffle. <laughs> right. It was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> you know, when people, see, you know, they get their ticket number, you know, set up and then they can stand up and go get it. These yeah. people were screaming and hooting and hollering. Oh, yeah, they got rowdy. Well, they, that's what happens when you give out free beer. <laughs> you know, stuff pretty, gets on, unhinged pretty, pretty cool. quick. Yeah. And so, yeah, that episode, Jocko, the Jocko podcast, 118, always find a mission and win with Dan Crenshaw. Dan Crenshaw is an amazing dude. He, uh, you know, he got blown up by an IED, which is an improvised explosive device, lost one of his eyes. Um, 
and the whole thing revolves around, you know, he, when he was injured and he, he was, you know, sitting there in the hospital doing his very, very long recovery because he didn't have, he lost his sight and all this stuff. You know, a, a seal without somebody to fight is, is a, is kind of a scary thing. And it's also what a lot of uh, vets deal with. You know, when they get out of the military, they're often like unanchored and they don't really, you know, if they don't have the next mission, then they, it gets pretty, it could become pretty self-destructive. So Dan's whole thing, you know, he's, he's now gotten into politics. He's still doing public service. The guy's just, his story is amazing. Just listen to the podcast. 118, always find a mission. Jocka podcast. Anyway, wow. without further ado, it'll make you cry. It, anyway, here we go. <laughs> so we're, yeah, we're going to talk about um, parasites on this one. So we've got Michael Hellmeyer and Tyler Pilger in the room. How are you guys doing? Did I say your last name right? You did, yes. That's oh, correct. Okay. <laughs> one out of, I get one out of ten, right? Mine's usually the one you. I know. Well, you've had you've been on a couple good, times now. Yeah. So we're going to talk about par- parasites and invasive species. Okay, yeah. Said it. Said it well. Species. Species. Well, I've got this. I got a fish bio beard brew going. So by the end of the episode, I'll probably be saying pieces. <laughs> right. <laughs> So what is it? What is an invasive species? What what is a parasite? Well, invasive species is generally has a negative connotation to it, right? Invasive. Yeah. Um, so so does exotic. Um, so I think before we continue to talk about this, it's it's important to st- start out with some definitions to yeah. set some ground rules, yeah. basically. So <laughs> introduced. Non-native, exotic, invasive are often used interchangeably. And introduced seems intuitive. It's a species that does not naturally occur in that particular place. Um, Same thing with with non-native. Exotic becomes a little more complicated. So exotic, by convention, um, is defined as not native to the continent where it is found. Kind of like Hawaii. Mm kind of like Hawaii. Yeah, exotics mm. really got their the big name during the pet trade when people were bringing over bringing over pets from all over the world. Um and that sort of had its own sort of connotation whereas um you know, just moving a fish from one stream to the next mm-hmm. even though it wasn't native originally in that stream um has a very different um outcome generally than bringing a f- species from halfway across the world. Right. So for the the local fishing crowd, the example would be a largemouth bass in California is introduced. It's a non-native, mm. but it's not exotic. A brown trout is exotic, and all it, the previous ones because it, it comes came from, from a different Germ- Germania. That's right. Okay, got it. And then, as the next level or the next step would be to to define the invasive, and that is again a non-native species to the ecosystem. And the introduction of that species can cause or is likely to cause harm to human health, the economy, or the environment. That's what defines invasive. So there's a bunch of non-native, maybe even exotic species here that are not invasive. And again, to stay in the fisheries world, the example that I I like to mention, and maybe it's just for for lack of our understanding, but would be the big-scale log perch in the Sacramento um, it's a small fish, very cute, pretty looking fish about the size of your index finger has stripes on it. Um, and it was introduced into the Sacramento basin 
sometime in the 70s, I believe, with a shipment of largemouth bass that came from Texas to stock some ponds at Beale Air Force Base about an hour from here. And with that shipment came the log perch. And now those are found up and down the Central Valley. You know, they're not very abundant. We are not aware of any any interaction with the native community at all, either for better or worse. And yeah, they're they're not abundant. They don't do any obvious harm, yet they're there. They're reproducing. There's, you know, solid populations now. They, they have a, a fairly wide distribution. Um, so that would be an example of an exotic species, but that's not invasive. So what, you know, when you, you say they got introduced through, through Beale ponds and watersheds I, uh, that go through Beale, um, how do they end up in other, like a landlocked flooding, massive water flooding? Exactly. Okay. So is that the Sacramento perch? Is that what you? No, that's not the that's not the Sacramento perch. It's a log perch. Okay, so, so it's, there, you it's know not, what I'm talking about. I do know what you're talking about. Okay, because um, those are an almanor, from what I understand. Those are an almanor. That's actually an, another kind of a, an interesting thing. The largest populations, probably the the healthiest populations, if you will, of Sacramento perch, even though they're native to a Sacramento system, um, are probably almanor mm. where they're not native they're introduced mm-hmm. um and pyramid lake were okay. also where they're not native well if that's introduced. the case then there's got to be more than just flooding that's causing them so is that well what those the, were those the, were deliberate introductions the bucket the bucket biology the bait buckets. Yep. bait those, buckets those were deliberate introductions okay okay all right well yeah let, so we just talked about the sacramento perch but what are the other local species around this area Local species that are non-native or invasive. Stripers. Um, striper could certainly fit that definition as an as an invasive species since they are um, very likely to cause harm to the environment. If by the environment you de- define, you know, or, or mean the assemblage of, of local fish species, including all the, the listed and endangered ones. Um, we do know by now that the, the striped bass predation interaction with native species is a pretty significant problem in the Central Valley. Um, So by that definition, yes, you could certainly classify striped bass as invasive, even though they were deliberately introduced Mm -hmm. um, over 100 years ago. So with respect to the brown trout, and let's let's use Almanor as an example, Mm -hmm. they stopped, as far as I understand, they stopped stocking it like with browns like how long ago a couple years two three years ago yeah they're talking about i don't know if they're going to stop because there's been some complaints by yeah i would local guides but um they talked about it i don't know if it's going to come okay so it hasn't been it hasn't been uh put into action yet i don't think so if anyone listening knows for sure like when that's going to happen or when and if that would be cool you know send us a uh, email hello i think it no it's fish on it (laughs) barbless.co so I wonder, it makes that you bring up German browns. I wonder, <laughs> they came from Ger- Germany, right? In Asia. German browns, yes. Asia. So brown I mean, trout actually have a pretty pretty broad natural distribution. Yeah. Um, all over Europe, Eurasia. So you can find them from, you know, Norway to Turkey to even even spilling over into the, the northern part of the African continent, um, Morocco, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, that have native brown trout subspecies, if you will. Um, and maybe something to check out if someone is interested in that, because there's really a, a huge, huge diversity of brown trout forms and subspecies out there that um, people generally are not aware of. 
And there's a Canadian artist, uh, Paul Vesky, that has made it his mission, if you will, to to document and draw very cool. um, different brown trout That's species. Um, so he's he's the the Tom Larry of brown trout, if you will. Yeah, that's crazy. Like I've seen three distinctly different looking brown trout on McLeod that I, that we've caught, you know, and it, it's a it's trip it's a trip. So I can totally understand that there'd be a lot of diversity on say in Europe, you yes. know. So the so the German brown, I think that that nomenclature stems from there were some some introductions or some shipment that specifically came from Germany, right? right. Um, and when known, I think oftentimes the, the source location kind of denotes their, their strain. There was the, you know, Loch Laven or whatever would be another one that came from some lake in Ireland, I believe. Um, but yeah, German Brown, it's, it's the common name now is German, is German Brown. That does not mean that they are from Germany. They could just as well be from, you know, Sweden or Spain or right. anywhere in between. Hmm. I know because, you know, the, looking at New Zealand, they took uh, rainbows from the McLeod here locally. Um, but I think most of the, you know, all the documentation over there says the Browns came from Asia <clears throat> and all their river systems <laughs> from what I've read. But anyways. Well, maybe it's also worth pointing out too, that throughout much of uh, the brown trout's native range, it's a listed species now. Um, a lot of those places, they're having a hard time keeping populations and stuff. Um, it's become one of the endangered over there in Europe. And really? here we have lots and lots of them. So when you say um, it's a listed species, do you mean it just, it's, it's stuck, like it can reproduce? And what do you mean by that? Meaning that they've, you know, in its natural uh, streams, they've seen the populations decline. Oh, and, okay. Um, so they've been doing a lot of work to trying to bring that species, the native species back and having self-sustaining populations. A lot like we try to do. What's been the issue? Is it, has it been like in a climate issue? Has it been water management issues? It's interesting because they're very resilient, right? To temperatures and they are, um, yeah, they are. I think one of the main issues that they're having, um, in addition to competition with invasive species, which in that case, in the European example, would be rainbow trout. Now, in nearly every river system, yeah. we find rainbow trout, mm-hmm. yep. and that is generally recognized as being pretty, pretty bad news for the local brown trout population because right. they're more fiercely um, competitive. And also, that rainbow trout tend to do really, really well in simplified or more simpler river systems. So, you know, straightening out a river's flood control structures, basically turning complex rivers with a lot of habitat diversity into monotonous canals. You're describing all of our tailwaters, essentially, right? No, no, not really. I think think European river modification takes that a few levels beyond tailwater. Where it might look um, like the California aqueduct, for example. Yes, yeah, okay. that would be that would be a very or any of our flumes up in the hills. Right yes, now. exactly. Okay, so that it. would be a, a more of a, a typical typical European river system that has been modified for you know a millennium or two for flood control. Because yeah. um, we're a relatively young country, therefore we have the you know the luxury of not having a lot of you know. It's kind of funny to make this statement, but we don't have a lot of you know engineered watersheds yes exactly and where a lot of people would think we do but we actually don't you know country's young yeah no it's a it's a completely different standard to to measure by and yeah. um 
Yeah, maybe something worth mentioning. I do speak from personal experience on that because the past mm. two, two and a half years, I was actually working for um, a state government in Austria as a fisheries biologist. Mm. So I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the the state of the river systems in Central Europe um, and the, um, I guess, problems or, or issues uh, related there too. Well, it's interesting because, well, what do you think of our fisheries compared to theirs since you have intimate knowledge now of both? I think I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it I'm is just a little curious. bit. Of, I, I think it is a little bit of a tangent. Um, the main, the main difference. <laughs> Nick's just chuckling. Well, I was going to say, going back to, I'm going to go <laughs> back to this. Did, okay. <laughs> he said invasive species had an impact on the Browns. And I was like, that's interesting. And then he mentioned rainbows. And I'm like, that's really interesting because going back to New Zealand, hiking those rivers and I mean, they're gin clear, right? And you can see every fish all the way up miles, every hike or every step you take, you can kind of spot these fish. Well, the brown trout in a pop stream that had mostly rainbows were at the very top, almost headwaters. You know, we might, we hiked miles before we even saw a brown and it, and it was only one big one, right? But there was tons of rainbows yeah. before that. And that's a to to back that up with a local example. That's exactly what you see on Big Chico. Creek. Yes, yes, yep. I was gonna say that. That's sorry, very cool. Sorry, one more. Sorry, one more time. I've been so, I've been like kind of detailed <laughs> on what we're gonna cover. But just so you're saying that the Browns are holding in the front. They're 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 yeah they're in the headwaters mainly. And they're in the headwater. Okay, and then all the and then all the 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 rainbows are in the tail tail yes. outs and tailwaters, which is weird. You would think it would tail be outs. the other way because right. the rainbow trout need the colder, you know, yeah. more oxygenated so, water. So is this like can... a is this like a like the bully kind of like apex peck peck or pecking order kind of a situation? Is that why they kind of organize that way? I think it is to some extent, um, but then again, it's the. It, it all depends on the river system that you put those fish in. If you put them in a canal, a rainbow trout will always do better than a brown mm-hmm. trout, which is why brown trout are not doing well and rainbow trout are doing increasingly well in a lot of European river systems. Hmm. Um, in you know a, a complex hmm. habitat that has a lot of deep pools, you know, undercut banks, root wads, kind of the, the typical brown trout habitat that you go look for them. Um, Sometimes it can be fairly balanced, and sometimes it can be in favor of the brown trout. Hmm. So my takeaway there is just like fish the wilder water if you want to try and find brown trout. That yeah, that's true. Or if you want to find them on Big Chico Creek, go really far up. You can kind of see that gradient. You know, if you go if you go on Big Chico Creek, kind of in the in the middle section, think the ecological reserve. Mm-hmm. You know, you find quite a few rainbows and then the larger pools will hold the occasional browns sometimes large ones Mm -hmm. and as you continue um up towards chester if you continue going up 32 to for example where where highway 32 crosses big Mm -hmm. chico creek if you look there the vast majority of fish that you find will be brown trout and hardly any rainbows so Mm -hmm. it goes from yeah almost all rainbows down below to just about exclusively brown trout up above with the gradient in between makes sense guess i'll be fishing big chico this year I didn't know that. I might edit that part out. <laughs> Don't expect big fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You get lots of browns this big. You can catch okay. all, all you all want, right. the size of your palm. I mentioned that. No, you have big palms, podcast. not quite that big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? So what other um, invasive species do we see here locally? 
So the invasive species realm these days obviously is a lot broader than than just, just fish. fish. Yeah. Um, in the aquatic environments, just to to stay somewhat focused, maybe we'll just mention a couple a couple examples. Um, one that is of of real big concern, especially down in the delta, would be water hyacinth, for example. You know, sold and and introduced to the United States or to California as an ornamental plant, right? It's, it's from, um, from South America, um, got it to our waterways and has reproduced exponentially to the extent that it literally clogs up waterways these, uh, these days, not only um, causing a lot of economic damage, um, um, definitely economically down into Delta, because I know the, the various port authorities had to spend millions of dollars trying to clear this, this water hyacinth from, from their um, navigational channels. And it's a floating plant. It's native to the Amazon basin that was introduced in California as, a, um, as an ornamental plant, because it mm-hmm. looks really pretty in your garden pond and has beautiful flowers. What's it look like? Um, it looks like a... Like a, a Ivy on the water, an ivy underwater, if you will, yeah, like a like a, a lily, like a lily, like a hyacinth. I see a purple, <laughs> I don't know a purple flower. It does have purple flowers, yes. Um, you know, th- think of like a, a pond lily or a, okay. a, a floating plant, not rooted to the to the ground at yeah, all. It's it floats, be, well, yeah, okay. Um, and it can reproduce very very rapidly. Um, has expanded in its range um, within the Delta substantially within the past few years um, to the extent that the the lower reaches of some some of the tributaries to the Delta um, are pretty much clogged by water hyacinth these days towards the end of the summer. Um, a good example of that would be the Tuolumne River, where in its lower reaches, you know, the water is fairly shallow, maybe, you know, two, three feet deep, and then you have this floating carpet bank to bank of water hyacinth that not only prohibits navigation, but we're not really sure what it does to native species. All of a sudden right. you have, you know, Pacific salmon that are that are expected to swim under a tunnel of a South American floating plant. And I'm not yeah. sure if that cause co- if they will readily do that or if that causes a, a behavioral migration delay or or what the ramifications of that are. Yeah, I mean not to mention just the, you know, the the ecosystem below you know in the mud right that that needs maybe photosynthesis oh yeah that they, that they level. completely block out the light yeah because it's like a forest canopy and nothing grows under it i think of know, it as if you, little if you find debris or anything floating on the ocean you're typically going to find some kind of a life underneath it right you're going to find bait fish or anything or like you know, that's where the dorado are going to be hanging so that's true so maybe it's a you know maybe the fish hang little babies hang out there and the striper ambush out of there or maybe, maybe it provides yeah. habitat yeah but I, I it sounds like it out does the more ocean, damage than it does anything else out in the ocean the difference is though right, you know right do you, do you have something to break the monotony right, right? in yeah. the in the big blue you you float a log and it'll provide shelter and it'll provide cover and mm-hmm. you know it's it's all about a break in the in the predominant substrate mm-hmm. in a shallow lake mm-hmm. the deep hole will be the best spot to fish in the deep lake the shallow plateau will be the best spot to fish so it's all about the the mm, those are good tips what's unusual right bam <laughs> put that in the memory banks that's the first time i've heard of that plant i've never i didn't know that it was 
that prolific down there. Yes, it's very it's very prolific, and it's yeah has caused quite a bit of issues. It caught it it's a big issue for us when we try to operate and maintain our my uh, our weir down in the lower river to uh, track to salmon migration, right? Because mm-hmm. water hyacinth mm-hmm. will just wash up on the weir, and mm-hmm. it takes a lot of maintenance to to keep a weir operational. Yeah, how often do you guys have to clean it? Daily, hourly. Oh. Sometimes when oh, Lord. flows come up and debris is heavy. Yeah, I was just at the uh, the Desabla Reservoir, and they had this contraption at the top of it, right right at the base of the flume before it got into the lake. And it's fully automated, and it's just this conveyor belt that constantly keeps that screen clean. And then the conveyor belt takes all the crap that's coming down in the flume. It's mostly pine needles and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but it takes it up this conveyor belt and then drops from this pile and apparently probably somebody comes and picks it up at some point but do you guys that that's kind of like that's well, how they're that's managing it my question was be how do they get rid of this hyacinth i mean how, how do yeah. they do they have big basically cages in front of boats that will gather it you or? can you can gather it and that's that's one of the big issues in the delta right now is actually how do you control and get rid of water hyacinths mm-hmm. right they have actually Props to them for thinking outside the box, but there have been ideas such as introducing the uh, capybaras, the Amazonian mammals that actually eat those. They're like a (laughs) giant rodent. Introducing those in the Delta, that idea didn't fly, but there's various... um, Another invasive species. And then what happens Well, then I don't know if they would be invasive. They would certainly be exotic. I don't know if they'd be invasive. (laughs) Um, Biocontrol. Biocontrol, yeah. There there are certain invertebrates that will lay their eggs in water hyacinth, um, and the larvae will eat the water hyacinth, and that spreads to flow. There's Mm. always mechanical removal. Um, which is a lot of work and very expensive because those things are really heavy. They're waterlogged. And the big issue is, too, that they reproduce by fragmentation. So you run your prop over those, uh, shred one into five pieces, there'll be five new plants after that. Whoa. So getting rid of them is not really a, is not really a, is not really a, a real, yeah, is not a possibility. Keeping them down and and reducing them and keeping them manageable. Um, that's what we're that's what we're trying to get at, but we're still struggling huh. with that. So, and that's definitely where a lot of invasive species management is these days. It's we know a lot of these things we never be able to get rid of um, now that they're established. Um, so it all comes down how to do how can we manage and yeah. control. And, and you can't. It's not like you're a farmer and you know if there's if there's a weed out there you can spray <laughs> it. Because it's a little more complex, or no? Um, it is and it isn't. It all depends on the trade-off and what you're willing to do. Right. So maybe to go with that that farmer example, in a lot of smaller water bodies, and and I'm thinking, you know, personal accounts that I that I um, heard from a good friend of mine who works for the um, Department of um, Nevada Department of Wildlife. Um, a lot of what they do is um, chemical control of tilapia, invasive tilapia in Nevada that are taking over the warm water systems, springs, tributaries, where, where there's a lot of endangered fish species, a lot of endemic fish species that occur nowhere else in the world. And tilapia, either from aquarists or you know aquaculture people or aquaponics people, that have been released do really well in the warm waters of those springs and will absolutely decimate the native the native fish community. Mm. 
So what they've had to do there um, to be effective, and granted those are fairly contained systems, is they have to use a, a pisticide, a fish poison, um, to literally poison a stream to remove those fish or, or at the very least reduce those fish. And they're, they're species-specific then? They are not species. They'll kill everything. They are not species specific. So it's like a scorched earth policy, basically. Pretty much. So it's not like your, you know, specific herbicide that right. will only kill dandelions. It's like what Fishing Game did to the Big Chico Creek in the eighties. Yep. Or more recently, Lake Davis with the pike example. Right. right. That's, okay. That's that would be. So it's like the last ditch nuclear option, essentially. Pretty much. Okay. And to make it sound nice, you can call it a chem- a chemical renovation. <laughs> that's a yeah okay just i wonder if that's how the uh the the railroad described it they probably coined that phrase when during the dunsmer spill so uh, different make, different situation it makes though. me think about the simpsons and having this fish pop out that you catch that has like three eyeballs <laughs> three eyes. <or> yeah. <laughs> mr burns cackling on the, on the side <laughs> New Zealand mud snails. What New else Zealand mud snails, obviously another those. another big one um, as far as invasive species are concerned, um, can get very 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 numerous, right? And they're they've they're pretty much found in most watersheds. I know. Did you mention uh, Puta, Puta Creek yeah, not too no. not too long ago? Um, I'm familiar with New Zealand mud snails from working on um, some of the lagoons up on the north coast, up in Humboldt. Hmm. Um, particularly big lagoon has a, a mud snail problem, if you want to call it that, um, with very, very high densities of mud snails. Looked like, you know, they dumped peppercorn out of an airplane and it's just the, the whole bottom of the lagoon is, is it would almost look like little pebbles, like yeah. stuck to the ground or something, Pretty but much. they're basically and, and taking out the dirt and every, all the, the mass around like the banks, right? Is that kind of what, isn't that what they do? I thought it had to do with the oxygen in the water or something no i'm not i'm not really sure if the like physical impacts of mud snails have been very well defined if not i'm not too familiar with them but i know on some of the trout streams in um, i believe idaho and montana where they've had mud snail problems is they've noticed um, effects on the fish community that trout will start eating mud snails because all of a sudden it's the predominant food source but they can't digest them so they have a stomach full of mud snails, but can't digest them. And the mud snail will pass so, through the whole fish still alive. So it's and like they eat gravel and come out the other side. Pretty much. And they feel full, yet they don't get any They're caloric any gain. Calories. They're not getting any energy. So you have these fish oh, that are, man. you know, emaciated pretty much, yet they, the fish themselves feel like they have a I, full I just had a I just had an idea for a business. We could start a mud snail business and, like, sell in, in L.A., People eat that stuff all day and not have any calories. It's Ooh, perfect. That's a good idea. <laughs> Mud snail, like shikes and everything. Right? Yeah. Little, you like it? Little crunchies. Yeah. Just protein <laughs> bars or something. I don't know. What's another one? Um, you mentioned one, Tyler, earlier. Um, dope. Um, the Didymo? Didymo. Didymo. Yeah. Or as a fun little name, uh, Rock's Knot. Uh, <laughs> so this is a diatom. That is incredibly invasive. Um, it's a little little bitty thing, but it creates um, huge mats of what look like, like a um, green plume yeah, or, green yeah. plumes or like uh, wadded wadded up toilet paper in the streams. You know that, oh, wow. um, and it just it does a lot like what the um, the mud snails will do is it covers up the entire substrate 
And all of the macroinvertebrates or all the bugs or what we like to call fish food yeah. um, can't, you know, it does. They, those things don't have a place to live anymore because they're completely covered by um, by the Didymo. So how do they? How do you stop it? And what, I mean, what are some of the procedures to get rid of it? Is there effective treatment yet? Yeah, I, I still know. think you know one of the, the one air. of the big things is is trying to prevent the spread, um, and trying to minimize minimize the impact once it's once it has shown up which is why it's so important to clean your vessel thoroughly before going into different bodies of water clean, yeah clean your waders yeah, your boots yeah prevention is probably uh our number one tool right now right. yeah so let's get to that really quick because you guys hop in a lot of different waters and i'm sure you have some pretty stringent decontamination procedures can you kind of talk about those a bit we do um there's three three general pathways that um, are typically used at RC that seem fairly reasonable to um, kind of keep the risk of transferring invasive species in check. Um, one of them is chemical, obviously. Um, different chemicals, disinfecting chemicals will kill just about everything. Um, the typical angler, myself included, um, for my personal waders, tend to shy away from that because you don't want bleach eating through your expensive waders. Um Another option is drying it out, really, really drying it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has that'll, to be that'll for an, nuke nut, mud snails also. For if it's if it's really dry for an extended period of time, okay. Um, the Chico Sun will do that after yeah, a couple days yeah. um, during the summer. Um, what I found the best option, and I, I realize that that's not an option for everyone either. But we have a big chest freezer, freezer yeah. that we freeze it. So we have a freezer that's designated for waiters, and people come back from the field. Waiters go in. That's where our waiters live till we go back out. Burr. Um, and <laughs> yeah, about a half hour to an hour of thawing prior yeah. to you putting them on typically helps. Yeah, but I mean the people in Nevada won't have any problem with that idea, but probably not. <laughs> So freezing, desiccation, and and chemical disinfection um, are the three pathways. And yeah, to 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 each his own, whatever works for you. Um, I think isn't it a ten percent bleach solution is all you really need to yes. to kill most things. So yes. um, you know, and that's not really. I mean, one or two of those on your bleach uh, on your uh, waders isn't gonna destroy your waders. Yeah, or um, but if you're like doing it frequently i think that could cause a problem i, I bet here. you that that sims has probably got an opinion on this and has published something around decontamination and what's you well know. they they started you know making more um boots that were, didn't have felt on them you yeah. know they were using rubber instead that's and, true uh, well in states have implemented regulations that say you felt. can't use yeah. alaska is felt, felt free right? new zealand <laughs> New Zealand's another one. Yep. They just need to be brand new if you're going to come into the yeah. country. No, and f- for a good reason, right? Felt, uh, felt obviously stays wet for very, very long. There's lots of mm. little nooks and crannies for yeah. um, for species to hide. And yeah, in the case of, of um, the rock snot, it doesn't take much. Um, you know, a couple cells will do the trick and, and introduce it into the watershed. Yeah, and I fall all the time, so I, I use felt myself. But it, with steel cleats, it's pretty grippy. Yeah, same with the Vibram soles. You know, Vibram yeah. soles and cleats. They're yeah. they're grippy too. What did we miss? Any invasive species? Did we go over the the, the main Pieces. ones? Do you guys have the zebra mussel here? That's, yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. zebra so, mussels and quagga mussels. One. Yeah, um, 
those are that you know those are a big one uh, certainly uh along the east uh coast and in the great lakes and uh, you know, because they basically, they just get so, there's just so many of them that they clog intake pipes. Um, but they also, interestingly enough, they will actually have an ecosystem effect. So they started seeing where, where these huge densities of these mussels show up, uh, it clears up the water because they're filter feeders. Oh, wow. Um, wow. So, are, so are they in California too then? Yes, they are. Yeah. Okay. So they'll take some murk and they'll turn it into clear water eventually if there's enough of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. Which is pretty and appeal visually appealing, <laughs> right? But not not always a good thing. N- not if the native species in there were used to living in a turbid system and sure. that's how they hid right. from their predators. Right. So I as a little kid I used to go to Fort Bragg all the time and we would go through Clear Lake. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember back in those days, and this is, you know, I already said how old I am, so I'll just go come out and say it. So, like, early 80s, mid-80s, um, that that lake was, like, green. And then I went through there recently on a coastal trip, and it was it looked a lot better than it did as far as my mind's eye remembers it. Um, do you guys know anything about Clear Lake? Not too much. Okay. Um, I I have heard of water quality issues in the past, like mm. you mentioned in the eighties and into the nineties. Um, but I think a lot of that was due to infrastructure, infrastructure, and point non-point source pollution. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of what's what's leaky point, non-point. So source a, a point the... point source solution would be literally like a sewer point running into the lake. Oh, that would be okay. your point. And then your non-point source would be more diffuse. Say, you know, you have a shoreline with a thousand houses and every house has a septic tank and it just like slowly leaches, okay. kind of diffuse okay. into the into the lake. And I think that's a problem. They they have done a lot to get under control and, and has it the water quality in the lake has improved substantially okay. since. Very cool. What about parasites? Are we done with invasive species? I don't know. And I want there, to find there, out there if there are. <laughs> I, how about so this? Many. There's there are invasive species that are parasites. How's that? Ooh, okay, that's, that's a good trans- segue. Let's transition. That's a good segue. We will creep over into mm. parasites, but let's talk about those. So uh, you're, hybrid. Refer- you're referring to a lamprey. I am referring to a lamprey. The lamprey, which we talked yeah. about a lot, the lamprey orgies and all that stuff, which was on episode I forget, but um, it was the last one with you and Matt actually. So. <laughs> It, it was a good one. <laughs> were those the lampreys or were those the eels? Eels, lampreys. I think those were the eels. That's, there's a difference. See, still, that's they all freak I just out. wanted to say orgy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that's that's what the eel river was misnamed after, right? Was there's actually were, still are, lampreys in the eel. Um, but they were considered or identified as eels by the people that named the eel river. There's no eels on the west coast of the U.S., but there's lampreys, but the Eel okay. River was actually named for the lampreys. Um, in any case, but switch over to the to the Atlantic seaboard, and you have the the sea lamprey, which are native there. Um, but they have the sea lamprey have been able to spread into the Great Lakes through a number of shipping canals um, connected the Great Lakes to the ocean and, and the Great Lakes to to each other. So sea lamprey were able to move up into the Great Lakes, into an environment that contained a lot of prolific species and, and charismatic species. First and foremost, the, the big lake trout that had no um, no mechanism to, to deal with or avoid with sea lamprey because it was an entirely novel predator to them. So 
um, lake trout population plummeted dramatically when the sea lamprey um, invaded. So those, even though they were not introduced, they're still an invasive species um, because, well, they spread into a novel environment and do substantial damage to the native ecosystem. And so, sorry, go ahead. Go. Oh, so I was going to say they they affect the lake trout by sucking onto their sides. So they're, you know, think they have, lampreys have a a suction disc with um, rasping plates or rasping teeth that they use to break the skin and then feed off of their hosts uh, bodily juices, bodily fluids. That's how they get their enemy. uh, That's how they get their energy. So they're, there's some discussion or some argument over whether they should be classified as parasites or or as actual predators. but I think I think by definition, if you if you define a a predator that you know by their nature they they divert energy from their host without benefiting their host, um, I think that makes them makes it makes them fit as parasites. So mm-hmm. there's fish that are that are parasites. So you you said a second ago about the lake trout. Uh, this this lamprey gets introduced in the system. The lake trout doesn't have a way to to fight it. Um, are there examples where the that lamprey and a life history of a trout they kind of basically grew up together and evolved together and if there are how do those trout combat the lamprey good question that's a very good question and i'm not sure i know the answer to it because maybe is it like natural is it like an immunity they just make themselves not taste good or do they like rub their sides on rocks that's kind of what i'm wondering yeah i'm not sure because from time to time you'll see a salmon here on the west coast that has a a lamprey suction mark so the native lampreys here on the west coast the pacific lampreys will prey on salmon too for example Mm -hmm. um but I'm not sure if the salmon have a, a mechanism to, you know, shake or get rid of a lamprey or or what keeps them in check here. And it makes me wonder if if they're not, maybe they're not targeting salmon at all, you know, and if they do, it's more of an opportunistic kind of a thing. Then That may be very you know what I mean. Yeah, that may be the case. And then it makes me wonder what they are actually eating. What do you call that when you have two species? Working together. Symbiosis. Symbiosis, yeah. If you have them working together, both benefit. Yep. Yeah. Like the anemone clownfish example. Right, right. I don't know if anyone can benefit from having its juices sucked I out. I think though. nature finds a way, you know, like over time, maybe that lake trout was going to, you know, I don't know, who knows if it was going to go extinct, but eventually maybe it adapts, right, and finds a way to... But there's fight. like several generational life histories that have to happen before that that mutation can be introduced, right? Yeah, it take that certainly takes time. And in the meantime, you know, a lot of efforts are underway to to keep those lampreys in check. They've, you know, set traps and they lure them into um, specific reaches and, and canals during their spawning migrations using pheromones and then remove them. And so there's... Can you imagine you know, having that job, removing all those slimy <laughs> bastards? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I almost got political, but I stopped. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, but in any case, you know, lamprey lamprey would be a good example of a a parasite that can also be invasive and exotic and non-native. And it probably, if you ever catch a fish that has a a parasitic lamprey, you'll be very quick to notice because lamprey are big and the vast, vast majority of other parasites are going to be much, much, much smaller. If anybody's caught... A uh, 
a fish as described, please send it to us. I'd right. like to see a I've fish on it. I've always seen with salmon specifically the mark, right? Never seen one actually attached, but you always do see. Yeah, it. or a yeah, mark. You see the I've mark. I've never seen one. I haven't seen one attached, but I've seen the mark. If you What's the mark look like? I'm going to assume it's a circle, but it is a circle. It's like a it sore, like a round, perfectly round, spherical sore. Yep. Okay. What about sea lice? Sea lice are a parasite, or an external parasite. Um, that. So it's a it's a copepod, like a little crustacean almost, mm-hmm. um, that you know attaches to the fish. Usually feeds off its you know mucus, bodily fluids, mm-hmm. um, but much much smaller than a you know one or two foot long lamprey, of course, and typically with no ill effect to their host. Um, kind of to to back that up or to set the the general stage a little better. Um, the vast vast majority of fish have parasites mm-hmm. probably all of them yeah you said that before we started this podcast and i i, I really i did shudder a little bit inside because i eat a lot of sushi and am i at risk you've eaten a lot do of I, parasites do i have like a you know 30 foot tapeworm in my gut right now i do not know if you have a tapeworm but i can tell you that you're probably not at an elevated risk when i say fish have parasites you know i'm talking about a natural low level like background level parasitism that just occurs naturally just like any deer in the forest will have a tick it doesn't mean that you can't eat venison yeah um it's like we you know radiation's bad for us but we always get hit with radiation every time we go outside and the sun's shining exactly such low levels exactly so typically parasites will won't really have any ill effects on fish or fish populations okay you know, if a if a fish has a, a sea louse or a handful of sea lice, that typically does not, you know, impact a, an adult salmon or steelhead um, in in any significant fashion. And in case of the sea lice, often it's appreciated by anglers, even yeah. right? Because yeah, like, you get oh, a look, it's, it's fresh from the salt. <laughs> yeah. It still that's has a, sea that's lice. That's the indicator. On it. Yeah. yeah, that's the indicator, and they'll fall off once the once the fish hits fresh water within a few days of that. Oh, okay. Um, um, so I have. I have a question around I because th- I think this is a lice, but I was in um, Almanor catching trout in kind of the coves, mm-hmm. and they had these growths on them, and they were kind of like they almost look mucus-y, like a sea lice, right? Kind of look, yeah, but they're not. They're almost just they're kind of like pink, super larva like, type larva looking things, and they were up on the fins mostly around the fins. They weren't all over the body, just like up on the fins mostly. Hmm. Probably either a, a trematode or a nematode type parasite. Fish tend to get those a lot, um, and they usually you know, like you'll see like the little bumps around uh, around their fins, um, and you know, and those are we uh, you, you see them a lot in you know, fish in the wild, and um, I've never known anybody to eat one, but I <laughs> also don't know of anybody who's actually gotten sick from. Uh, they almost look like acne. See them on the fins. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you know what what that could be. Um, did you notice it on several fish? Yes. No, uh, yeah, actually it was yeah. pretty consistent. Yeah. So typical uh, with a lot of parasites, um be it um the the parasite that you encountered, which yeah, I'm I'm not confident enough to to make any type of diagnosis on that. Um, but with a lot of parasites that their prevalence is often highly seasonal because they have their life cycles just like, you know, every, everything else yeah. does. 
And to go back to some European examples, there was was one river where in in May and June, just about every fish would have a f- two, three dozen leeches. And it was not very appetizing. And <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was I I had some significant concerns. Like every fish in here is just covered in leeches. And I went back three weeks later and they were all gone. They were clean as they could be. And it was a, you know, it was a life cycle thing. The water had been really cold, had just warmed up when the water's cold. The fish will, will hang out in the deeper areas of the, of the stream. That's usually covered or that usually has muddy or soft substrate, which, you know, has more parasites. The fish were close to the bottom. The fish weren't active and those parasites have to swim up and grab onto the fish. And if a fish, is really still and is really close to where the parasite is, um, chances are you get a much yeah. higher infection rate. Yeah, so hatcheries, is there any, you know, let, let's say, for example, Coleman fish hatchery has has some sort of a parasite infestation or whatever, and then it's, tra- I, I guess my question is, do hatchery, are there, is there any significant data on hatcheries and, and how, being a problem in terms of either spreading not invasive species, but definitely. Well, just, I can tell just you that just based on what ang- that we don't anglers' want. knowledge and what they talk about yeah. all the time, that everybody thinks that those parasites you're talking about mm-hmm. came from a hatchery fish, right? They've been mm-hmm. in like a, a small, tight area. Mm-hmm. They all shared it with each other, and then they got introduced into a lake, and they, you know, are spreading around all the yeah, other fish. You- that's probably the that's the standard thought process when it comes to. I think that's typically what people think is that, oh, and, you know, it's a parasite and it's bad and it must have come from a hatchery fish. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's always the case. And I, I actually think it's rarely the case. Um, granted, with any parasite, the chances for rapid reproduction and spread are going to be much higher if you have fish in high density, in clo- like, yeah, in yeah, a, yeah. like in a hatchery setting. Yeah. Um, but then you, again, you got to keep in mind that in hatcheries, oftentimes they do, they, they treat for parasites, right? Yeah. They, it's got to be highly managed, right? Like it's got to be highly managed. Yeah. If not, you can't do it. It's like keeping high density livestock. You cannot do it without any type of treatment. Antibiotics, stuff like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be antibiotics. It could be anything from UV sterilization of the water as it recirculates to vinegar to a whole bunch of different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be antibiotics, but you have to do something to keep your water clean. And most hatcheries also have fish health um, on staff, like fish health uh, scientists on staff, and they're regularly sampling fish, trying to manage any sort of outbreaks that could uh, come about in the hatchery because they recognize the fact that, yes, these are going to be stressed fish potentially um, crammed into very, you know, uh, these raceways, but they, they work really hard at trying to manage that. And, but realizing that if there's parasites in the hatchery, they probably came in from the fish that they brought in from the wild, but that's also why they try to quarantine fish whenever they bring in stuff from the, from the wild as well. So there's a whole okay. protocol involved with bringing fish into the hatchery yeah. and letting fish out of the hatchery. Yeah, I kind of feel like we need to do a, a hatchery episode. We've been talking about it for a long time, but I would love to get a tour of one operationally yeah. what's going on. Well, and actually to to back up what Tyler just said, you know, in, in hatcheries, the, the problems that you do tend to have and they can be a real big issue are either bacterial, viral, or fungal. Those those three diseases, if you will, can be really detrimental in hatcheries. Parasites themselves often not as much because 
parasites often have a really complex life cycle. So they can't just go from one fish to another. Like they have to either, you know, be on their host fish and then get to disperse in the water and then live in a snail for a while and then get eaten by a bird and then get picked up by the fish again. So it's not, it's not something that could actually physically happen within a hatchery because it's so controlled. Stage, it's so controlled. stage like three of five is the only thing that the hatchery allows it. Exactly. Right? And okay. the parasites need the parasites need one through five, for right, example. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, w- one example of a, of a complex life cycle, and like I said, that's typical of a lot of different parasites is a, and I'll just mention a, one that I'm familiar with, which is a, a tapeworm. Uh, it's called a trionophorus. It's referred to as a pike tapeworm. And the actual tapeworm lives in the intestine of a pike and just feeds off of, you know, whatever fish the pike eats. And then at some point it reproduces, releases millions of eggs into the water column um, that get actually get, the eggs get eaten by tiny zooplankton. And with it, the zooplankton gets infected and is then eaten by another smaller fish. Um, and the gastric juices in that smaller fish actually activate that parasite, that embryo, and which will like penet- puncture a hole in the fish's stomach and uh, penetrate the tissue. And usually the, the fish's immune system will encapsulate it, that parasite in the tissue and turn it into a cyst. And there it can live and, you know, persist for a few years until that fish gets eaten by a pike again. And, and when, when, it gets, when it gets digested again, <laughs> that parasites get activated and that's how it completes the life cycle. Then it stays in the pike's Holy intestine smoke. and starts to cycle all over. And it, it doesn't even have to be all within, all within the water. There's various examples where, you know, it goes from... It goes from it's spread by the bird and has to live in a snail for a while and then in the fish. And then it actually some parasites alter a fish's behavior, make them more likely to swim near the surface or swim erratically to make them more likely to get eaten by a bird, which then completes the cycle. Um, and obviously, as you can imagine, all that won't happen in a hatchery setting. There is just not the. Yeah, the, it's just crazy how, you know, biology, you know, mutates and it doesn't really have a conscious kind of someone at the wheel at the the, there's no pilot per se it's just basically you know natural selection and and chance and mutation and you know nature selects for the thing that is going to be the most resilient but that most resilient thing there's no overarching driver it just happens to be randomly the thing that does the best in this particular condition what what works under those circumstances um a different parasite that you know also has since i mentioned the snail also has that intermediate host um of the or that intermediate stage in the snail and that people in northern california might be familiar with is a black spot disease and i know well, personally, I've seen fish up on, on Hat Creek in, in the general area that have black spot disease. And it's really obvious if you look at the lighter section of a fish, like if you look at their lighter bellies, you know, it looks like almost has like a peppered appearance. Um, and they're, um, they're, they're a, a pair. It's again, it's the fish's immune response that, that tries to keep out the, the penetrating parasite, the, the worm. Um, and it'll it'll turn black and and create these little these little bumps. It almost feels bumpy. I've never seen this. Um, yes, 
go go fish Hat Creek and and take a look. And and then again, why why I see Hat Creek and um and Black Spot again, it, you see parasite prevalence really increase in habitats that are either really favorable to the parasite, which you know if you think. The, the black spot with the immediate host is snails. Snails need a lot of muddy substrate water plants, and you have that in Hat Creek. You won't mm-hmm. find that in the McLeod, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and parasites are not rare. You know, I mentioned earlier that um, I'd I'd wager or I, I challenge you to bring me a fish that I couldn't find a parasite on. Um, parasites are not really a bad thing. Um, there's a, a natural background level of parasites. Pretty much every fish will have a parasite, but it's not really a concern. And, yeah. and I mentioned that example from Hat Creek specifically, cause I went fishing with some friends there and he really wanted, you know, he really wanted to eat some. And he's, <laughs> he's a guy who's worked in a, in a hatch, in a hatchery setting for many, many years. And he's actually really familiar with all sorts of different, different parasites. And he caught those fish and said, yeah, well, I'm going to keep, a, I'm going to keep a couple for the fr- frying pan. And it's like, well, do you, do you know, they have black spot disease. And like, yeah, no, it's like, it doesn't matter. You know, and it's like, well, um, for one, you know, if you cook it, you pretty much deactivate or, or kill everything that's in there. Um, and he, he said specifically in, in regards to black spot disease, like, yeah, I've eaten fish before, you know, it's like, it's just, you can, you can cut the skin off and because it is in the skin, you'll remove the vast, vast majority of it anyways, if right. you just fillet it with the skin off. But he likes his spin, you know, his skin on and, you know, a little, a little crispy. And he's like, oh, you, you can just eat them because they're just, you know, A, they're dead and B, they're just yeah. kind of crunchy, just kind of like well, sand. We also <laughs> have to keep in mind that, you know, we, um, we've been on, as a species on this planet for a long time and eating fish for a long time with oh, parasites yeah. and and we're yeah. good mm-hmm. so yeah no, always keep that in mind i don't think i don't think for the average angler um picking up a parasite from a fish that they've caught is a, is a realistic concern right um especially not if it's cooked and especially not if it's frozen and if it's eaten raw you know use your common sense look at your food um make sure you know your where your food comes from how it's been handled Oftentimes, if if you have any negative effect from eating fish, I'd wager it's not because of a parasite, but it's because of like a bacterial issue mm. that the mm-hmm. food hasn't been handled right. properly. Mm-hmm. If you lay, you know, if you leave a fish out in the sun for for a couple afternoons and then try to eat it, yeah. you'll get sick, and it's not going to be because of a parasite, but, but because of food, <laughs> because of food handling. So there's nothing locally about that anglers need to be worried about as far as when they're cleaning fish or looking for anything particular. Or? Not that I'm aware of. It's always worth taking a close look. You know, to, when they clean a fish. I mean, personally, I've I've made it a habit because I'm a fish nerd that any fish I clean, I, I check out their stomachs. I kind of check mm-hmm. out their internal mm-hmm. organs, see if there's anything unusual. And if you take a close look more often than not, you'll find something you'll find, a, you know, a little worm in the liver or, or mm-hmm. something or another, but that's nothing to be concerned of. And generally those are parts that you're not eating anyways. Right. Do, do we need to be concerned about plastic showing up inside the fish? Well, good question. That is a really good question. I don't. I mean, because that's a big issue right now. In, in general, is it a concern that there's plastic and tissue of living animals that have never see, that have never fed like been fed any artificial food? Yes, I think that's a huge concern. 
Do I think it's a, an issue in inland water bodies here? Probably no, not, because no. I don't think anything accumulates here because right. it's just transient. Right. Um, I can't speak to any health effect of ingesting plastic kind of on a secondary level. You know, fish eats plastic and then you eat the fish um, for human health either. But the fact that plastic particles have been found in animal tissue um, is something that is... I don't, I don't want to have a cocktail with the straw served to me anymore. You know, you, everybody's seen that <laughs> yeah. video, you know, yeah. with that, with the turtle, right. And they're pulling that plastic mm. straw out of its yep. nose. Yeah. And it, it's, it's actually, it's gone viral and uh, you're seeing countries and States outlaw, right. And they're yeah. just not, they're not yeah. going to carry plastic anymore. Yeah. Plastic straws like That's this. Good. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, it, it took a, unfortunately it took as much as it took to, to get to this right. point where plastic pollution is, right. is really a huge, huge issue. And I think, and well, I hate to, well, I'd like to promote the BBC, but I'm not sure if this is the right venue for it, but I just recently watched the, the, uh, Blue Planet 2. Yeah. The great series. Great, great series. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. yeah, you should. Um, oh, you got the GTs eating birds. Oh yeah. yeah that, <laughs> that is one of hands down one of the coolest things that has ever been captured on video yeah. um but they have a, a segment on plastic pollution and i think that did just the influence of the bbc and just the, the quality of, mm-hmm. of those documentaries did a lot to raise public awareness worldwide and i think that's in part of of what yeah um encouraged that that anti-plastic movement and the more you become aware of it, if you think about it, you know, your, your day to day use yeah. of plastic, plastic everything, bottles, yeah. everything is plastic. And mm-hmm. if you become aware of it and try to, you know, consciously keep track of it gonna, or, or avoid it, it's shocking. You're going to lessen your footprint, is. you know, on, on our yeah. world, which is, I think, um, is, yeah. super important. My, every time we go to a restaurant and we order t- to go, if, if they come with like a styrofoam container, my wife just, just gets into them, man. It's so funny. She's like, and, and it's good. And, and it, that's what really we should good. do. The consumer really needs good. to put pressure on, you know, folks that yeah. are bringing styrofoam to your table when you're trying to take stuff to home. So it when, is down to the consumer. When that's I, exactly right. When I go uh, to the flats of fishing in, you know, whatever, the Caribbean or um, any, any place I've been where there's islands out, you know, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Those islands, the beaches are completely covered with plastic bottles. Like there's, you can't even see sand. There's just, they're everywhere. Flip flops, plastic bottles. Sad. It's crazy. They'll be there for a long time. uh, I, I disagree. I think that as, as soon as someone figures out how to make it economically viable, the recycle process, the, you know, the, the collection and recycle process, that problem will be solved. That's always the issue with, with any kind of, litter in my mind is if there a viable economic way to recycle that then it'll happen yeah well if there's it seems like there will be a viable way to to kind of stop it in its tracks right and like and recycle from the source from the individual yeah. household from the yeah. from the industry but there's also um, going to be a there's surplus the stuff he's talking about on the beaches that will be collected and monetized that's you know it'll hopefully it'll hopefully it'll happen Well, other than plastic, I would say (laughs) if you were wanting to eat fish from the streams, you know, another concern is going to be your um, pollution and and heavy Mm -hmm. metals and stuff. Um, And certainly the the best way to check check that is look look with your local health departments because they do keep they do keep stats on on the fish. Yeah, 
And and I was going to ask you guys, you know, our local watersheds, which ones do you think, you know, from from say pristine quality to say, eh, you know, for California. If you look in the fishing regulations, uh, if you look in the book, fishing games already kind of earmarked those fish and they're telling people, especially if they're pregnant, to watch out for certain yeah. species. They've the identified big, areas and species of concern. The big yeah, one is the striped striped bass, which is a yeah. high mercury content. Yeah, because that gets if they're the apex predator, you know, basically has the highest likelihood to have any kind of like heavy metal contaminants because those heavy metals get passed from yep. from prey to from prey to predator to prey. Yeah, the biomagnification process. Right, that's the is, word. Bio you know, all of these, all these little bitty food items that the fish are going around eating, they're eating little bits of yeah. these contaminants. Um, but then if you, if you eat, say like a whole pound of these little bitty things, each of them with a little bit of contaminant in them, it just accumulates mm-hmm. into the predator and the higher up the food chain you go, the bigger, pro- the more problematic that is. Yeah. And the crazy thing is when they're, when they're eaten, that metal doesn't actually go away. It just as soon as the last thing to eat it decomposes, it goes right back in and starts over again, is my understanding. It goes yep. back into the environment. Yeah. Yep. yep. There's no like half-life for it. And, you know, I'm, sp- I'm speaking spe- specifically about mercury, right? Yeah. Uh, or there is a half-life, but it's, it's quite long. It's quite large. Yeah, but unless yeah, unless you actively remove it from the system, yeah. it cycles yeah. through. But in general, in the yeah. system, it's there to stay. Yeah. How old is how old would you say a twenty pound striper is, or a forty pound striped bass? I mean, how how old do you think that fish? Oh, would you're be? putting you're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> Length weight um, relationship there. Yeah, twenty pound. There's uh, usually when you get big striped bass, the length determines kind of the girth, right? Yeah. You get up to 40 inches, it's, it's, you know, 40 pounds, but for the, I've heard 20 years old for know, the, like a for fish the, like that being, oh. yeah, for the 20 to 40 pound range, I give you a eight to eight, 16 years is kind oh. of where I put it. Hmm. I had no so idea. That's that a long time. lasted that long. That's right. Crazy. Around eating stuff. Right. Yeah. Dude. Absolutely. Yeah, then think of some fish that are, you know, live literally over 100 years. Sturgeon. Sturgeon. Rockfish. Sharks. And I used to eat a lot of sturgeon growing up as a kid. My dad or my stepdad was a guide on the Sacramento River. Mm. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) That answers a lot. Yeah. That's why I get so red when it's hot. That's just my mercury going up. (laughs) Jeez. All right. I don't want to end it on that kind of a sad note of me dying <laughs> well, early of mercury poisoning. Yeah, we shouldn't be concerned too yeah. too concerned with eating fish. Yeah, so, so fish is a worldwide source of protein right. for, oh, for sure. all kinds and, and of communities. Not to, yeah, and I, I want to make sure we don't freak people out because we we have done an episode about this mercury thing. We haven't aired it yet. And essentially the what we asked the the professor that we had on and, and we'll um have her we'll air that soon. Um the qu- the question was, hey, you know, if I if I'm eating a, a higher mercury content fish, what's the you know what's the net net? She said it's basically what I said earlier about being out in the sun, getting hit with radiation, but it's not enough to really do much. That's essentially what she said. Yeah, yeah. No, small striped bass is such a good fish yeah. taco. Yeah. <laughs> so keep eating tacos. your fish. If you're pregnant, she said, that's when you probably can. don't. But yeah. other, if you're not pregnant, you're good. No, I mean, and you could still eat fish when you're pregnant, right? Yeah. You shouldn't eat 
fish fish species or from a source that's of concern um but yeah Yeah. those we need to get that episode chopped up and published it's awesome those those sources and species of fish that really are of concern are fairly few and far in between Mm -hmm. um and and the ones that are are um, and and big thumbs up to the agencies for staying on top of that. They're readily identified um, in the you know CDFW fishing license, yeah. uh, fishing regulations, etc. So. Right, right. All right. Yeah, we covered that was pretty good. It was yeah, a lot of invasive we, species and parasite talk. I was I'm, now I'm worried about having a tapeworm. Yeah, right. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely having a nightmare. Just check your stool. You'll know. So you've got wrigglies in there, <laughs> like gum. No, not wriggling, <laughs> like something wriggling around. Oh, okay. Like, I, I don't that, eat my gum, dude. I don't know what you do. No, the uh, the tapeworm egg cases will show up in your in oh, your feces. God. I had a buddy yeah, who, every uh, time he ate something spicy, it, his stomach was, it would kill him. You know, he'd be hurting really bad. He just, he didn't know, but that's what he was, that's what he was dealing with. He had a PCs, <laughs> an invasive PCs in his stomach. Yeah. Ew, gross. Yep. All right. Well, I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Go catch your fish, eat your fish. Don't worry about it. So even if it has those little little wormy looking things on the outside of the trout, if I'm on Lake Almanor, it's going to be. It's no no reason for health concerns. Just chew Um, them off like a corn, like a little piece of corn and keep fishing. Yeah. Eat eat the smallmouth. Cut them them off or just, you know, clean them, cook them. Don't tell anyone about it. (laughs) Um, It's not, it's not a source of health. So if we, for the people that practice catch and release, if they see parasites on the fish, don't even bother doing anything just let it go it's probably best just to let it go right my hunch is if you if you if you have to like pull off a leech or something um, to make you feel good do it (laughs) chances are are it's not going to help the fish in the long run for every leech you pull off an angel gets its wings maybe um (laughs) i know what we did when we when i was working in a conservation hatchery and we were working with um lake run brown trout that you know as they do during spawning season, they eventually, you know, develop fungal, like some lesions and get fungal infections and stuff. And when we'd handle those fish before we'd release them, we'd like actually put an iodine solution on it and, you know, actually like treat them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted to carry a little bottle of iodine to like disinfect any lesions your fish might have. Damn, that's next level. Um, Next level, next level necessary. No, if you feel like you do the fish a favor by pulling off a parasite, go ahead and do it. Ultimately, will it affect the fish health? I think it's better off by reducing the time it's being handled um, than yeah. having any type of any I type would of think, procedure right? Into just, it. just try to minimize the stress on the fish. The, the yep. nature will, uh, as Nick always likes to say, nature will find a way. A stressful fish is a, or a stress, <laughs> stressless fish. Stress-free fish is a resilient fish. So there you go. I like it. Uh, a happy, healthy fish is not going to have any issues with parasites. Cool. Well, hey, how can our listeners uh, find you guys on online on the internet's the series of pipes? Fishbio.com. Oh, Fishbio.com yeah. is the is the obvious way. Um, they have a great newsletter. Check it yeah, out. Yeah, the, the newsletter is great. Fish man. Report. Fish it's report. a fish report. Yeah, sorry. There's, it's very cool. There's an option to sign up for the fish report. That's a weekly newsletter. Where do um, I find that? covering covering up to date um <laughs> topics issues on 
in the fisheries world and on fisheries. It's and if you get a, get on fishbio.com, there's a sign up button, sign up for the fish and report. And very you guys are on the you guys are on the Instagrams. We are, yep. but I do not know all the handles. I think it's just at fishbio. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Look for fishbio. You'll find it everywhere. And, and Instagram, you're on the Facebook, Flickr. You guys are on Flickr too. We are on Flickr. It's old school. Yeah, they got lots Love of good it. photos up there. Yeah, it's actually for people that that do anything with fisheries or are looking for fish fish images or fisheries images. It's a it's an amazing resource. It's like just do. a good fish porn place in general. It's more more science related fish photos. But a, lot a lot of technicians of good, running the screw traps. That's cool, cool though. Yeah. <laughs> anything in you guys in, in like shorts or anything cleaning a fish trap? Perhaps. It's personal. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll Snapchat you that one. All right, <laughs> well, cool. Um, Nick, do we have anything to talk about yet? No, sounds good, man. Um, Leave us a review. No better. How about that review? No better, fish better. No better, fish better. Leave us a review on iTunes and Google Play. We just added Spotify for all those folks on Android that are not not trying to not able to figure out how to install the Google Play app because it's no, it's a pain. It's a pain. They don't have a native player yet on on Android like Apple does. So um, we're on Spotify. If you have a Spotify app, if you have a music account, you already have it. You're halfway there. Just search for uh, The Marvelous Fly Fishing Podcast on Spotify. It'll pop up, and you can subscribe that way. Um, that's all I got for now. Thanks for listening. We'll hear you. We'll, uh, we'll see you guys Thanks, next guys, week. for coming in. Appreciate all Thanks your Thanks for having us. Appreciate the it. knowledge. Boom. Cue outro. Uh, This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Amp.Bill. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.